Hello, and welcome to The Overtake. I'm your host, John Bazella, the president and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. This podcast is about the automotive industry and the people, events, and policies that shape it. This podcast is presented by Intel, a global technology leader. Together with subsidiary Mobileye, Intel is revolutionizing technology for the automotive industry, delivering best-in-class automated driving solutions to make roads safer for all. Learn more at Mobileye.com. Our episode today is going to be a little different than what you're used to on The Overtake. For those of you who aren't aware, in early November, Auto Innovators held its Autos 2050 Transforming Mobility Summit, which brought together some of the world's leading innovators, policymakers, and thinkers driving the future of personal mobility. One of those was Daniel Jurgen, the vice chairman of global information company IHS Market. Jurgen is an expert on energy, the impact of energy on our geopolitics, and the energy transition. He is the author of seminal books on energy policy and globalization, including The Prize, for which he won, appropriately, a Pulitzer Prize, The Quest, and most recently, The New Map, which is a fascinating look at the trends and developments in energy and climate change that are reshaping our world. During our wide-ranging discussion, we touched on the transitions and transformations impacting the automotive industry, from the vehicle supply chain broadly to the path to electrification. Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Very glad to be with you. Thanks. I want to start with what you call in your latest book, The Climate Map. There's been, for some time now, a transition happening in the energy space, a transition perhaps to lower carbon energy. And what does that transition look like today? Well, it's different from all other transitions. We're actually, John, in the 312th year of the energy transition, started in January of 1709, when a metal worker figured out in Britain that you could use coal to make iron instead of wood. But all the other energy transitions have unfolded over a long time and have really been energy additions. Oil overtook coal in the 1960s, but we use a lot more coal today. This one is different in a couple of aspects. One, it's meant to happen in a very short time, in 28 years. And two, it's not meant to be energy addition. It's really meant to be a transition from one to the other. And I think the third thing is the degree to which it's driven by governments. Mm. So speaking of driven by governments, do we see this transition happening differently in different parts of the world, for example, between the developed world and the developing world? Yeah, absolutely. We just did our own big conference, India Energy Forum, and India, Africa, other parts of the developing world, they see things differently because they say it's actually energy transitions. India says we're going to use more natural gas because we've got to clean up the air. We don't want people cooking with wood and waste and stuff like that. And so they're building out a natural gas system. So it's quite a different perspective. It's almost like a new north-south divide in terms of how to go about it, because they have imperatives that the developed world doesn't have about pervasive poverty and so forth. Has the pandemic changed the arc of this transition, in your view? I mean, it seemed to, but actually the rebound from the, the, the pandemic is quite significant because we've had this really strong rebound in energy demand. And what has it done? It's triggered an energy crisis in Asia and in Europe. And the first energy crisis I can really think of that didn't originate in the Middle East 
but originated because of strong economic growth. So there's a mix. I think the other thing is maybe this pandemic also actually changed some people's attitude towards plastic that actually plastic has some benefits for health. Mm. When I think about the pandemic and I think about the auto industry, and you, you talk about the resurgence of economic activity, we've certainly seen that in the auto sector. We shut production down completely during the midst of the pandemic and demand sales were down over 50%, say in April of 2020. Now demand is strong in the US. And, for, and, for and actually there aren't enough cars. Right. Right. And it's a supply-driven yeah. thing. I mean, supply and demand are kind of divorced from one another in the auto industry. And of course, there are questions with regard to supply chains broadly as a result of the pandemic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing not just in the automobile industry and computer chips, but the longest delays that have ever been measured in modern times for manufacturers, and it's affecting the entire global economy. And it's one of the factors that's feeding into the resurgence of inflation. While we're on the topic of the transition, the energy transition, I remember maybe a decade or so ago, this idea of peak oil. We were going to eventually get to the point, I think, when we'd reached the peak of developing physical a, supply, a physical supply of, of oil, and then we would start to go over that peak. Now I hear terms like peak demand. So what's the difference and what is peak demand? Well, there's a big difference. And by the way, going back to your previous question, John, one other thing that did happen during the pandemic is you got all these net zero carbon pledges. Mm. That's when most of them came either from companies or from governments. As you said, peak oil was the world was going to run out of oil and went back to my earlier book, The Prize, and looked, well, there were five previous times when the world ran out of oil, and each time there was a lot more oil that came on. Technology responds. This like fracking, for exi yeah. example. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that fundamentally changed the situation. People don't realize what a profound impact it has to have the U.S. go from importing 60% of its oil to being the world's largest oil producer and actually exporting. But peak demand is really part of what you're talking about, the energy transition, that as the world moves towards electric vehicles, towards electrification, using less oil, at what point does the world no longer keep going up that escalator? And a lot of debate about it, but view I take in the new map is that basically it's around 2030 in that period when the developing nation's incomes reach a certain level and start to flatten out. We're speaking during the time when COP26 is meeting, right? So the, the, the UN climate process. So what's your sense of what's happening at COP26 and what, what are we likely to see out of COP26? Well, it's, you have to sort of go back to the Paris conference, which was a key one where they agreed on this two degree centigrade, not rising above it, and now one and a half. And so really COP26 is about implementation. It's about mobilization of capital, what financial institutions will do, how aggressive or ambitious government objectives will be, what about carbon markets, and what about what are called offsets that you can, if you're producing CO2 over here, what are you doing over here to reduce it? So those are the big issues. And I think what you talked about before, the north-south divide, because the developing nations said, hey, years ago you promised us $100 billion a year, we haven't seen any of it yet. When are we going to get that? And so I think that's part of the discussion at COP26. So big, big challenges that yeah, we're facing yeah, globally. Yeah, and this is not something that it's the end of the game. It's, it's part of a process. It's part of a direction that the world is moving in. Yeah. I want to turn to electric vehicles. In your book, you do really a terrific job, in my view, of laying out this automotive transformation, more electrification, also more automation and connectivity, and, and, and even changing use and ownership patterns. The idea that we don't necessarily, maybe not 
own vehicles and we might just use them right. in the future. So how do you see the effect of those transformations on the energy transition? Well, clearly, uh, motor fuel is a very important part of oil demand. And so if you shift that from molecules to electrons, that's a really big shift. And I think, John, you know this industry very well, that this is probably the biggest change in the business model and direction in over a century. And it, I found it very interesting in this book and also in, in the quest, looking back at Thomas Edison and his ambitions for the electric car. And he said it's going to create all this extra electricity demand. And then it didn't make it and because of the Model T and mass production and internal combustion engine. And by the 1920s, electric cars were dying away. They were known as doctor's cars. The doctors would drive around St. Louis in electric cars. And now when Elon Musk and J.B. Straubel sat down at a fish restaurant in Los Angeles in 2003, and this idea came up, which Musk later said if that lunch hadn't happened, maybe there'd be no Tesla, just to think how remarkable and how quick it's been to go from that to where every automobile company that's your members is now at one degree or another saying, we're going to move to electric vehicles. This is happening pretty fast. Yeah, very fast. When we think about that, let's put that in context. We've heard the Biden administration lay out a, a very significant ambition about electric vehicles, an ambition that many car companies, as you've observed, agree with, which is we need to get to 50% of new vehicle sales being electric in the United States by 2030. So the end of the end of the decade. Right now, we're at roughly 3%. Well, let me jump in. So I just looked in our, we call a thing we do every month called Pulse of Change. It's up to 4.5% yes. in the US. Yeah. Yes, certainly the, the last several months, yeah. what we've seen, this is a great observation, Dan, and I'm glad that you mentioned it because we are seeing growth in EV sales really over the last several months that are outpacing the industry broadly. So that is a really important observation. So now here we are. So let's say we're at 4%, 4.5%. We're trying to get to 50. First of all, IHS market does a tremendous job of analysis and sort of a deep view of the market. What is, what is the IHS market view of electrification, say, out to 2050? Right. Well, let me take 2030 Let's do 2030 Let's first, do 2030 first. and then do 2050. Perfect. So, of course, we have a lot of smart people in IHS market. Not everybody agrees with everybody else, as you know, in organization. But I think this may be not what everybody wants to hear, but I think we think that the range of new car sales that will be EVs by 2030, which is just eight years away, is more likely to be in that 25 to 40 percent range. And it will be determined by, is the infrastructure there for charging? Is the grid ready for it? The thing that experience now tells us we have to take much more seriously is supply chains. And this industry knows it with what's happened with computer chips. And then the third is public acceptance. And people keep talking, where's the tipping point coming? And certainly the industry is going to try and push it. And I guess there's one other thing that makes us different than China and makes us different from Europe. It's politics. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be the next president, the next administration? So those are the variables, because if we look Right now, the U.S., as we say, 4.5% last couple of months. China's at 14%, again, in the pulse of change. Major European countries at 21%. So there's a lot of variation in there. So I would say 25 to 40%. But it's always good to have targets. Mm. Yeah, and it does raise the question, what would it take to get from that 25 to 40 to the 40 
to 50. I think partly it would be everything going right. Yes. And so let's go back to your supply chain point. I think you're right. The current challenge that the auto industry is facing with regard to a severe shortage of auto-grade chips could really be a cautionary tale about the electric vehicle supply chain, right? Well, I think more broadly, we've been doing a lot of work in IHS market on the supply chains in general, and it's so pervasive. And it just shows you assume these synchronized systems work, but then things start to go wrong and they multiply. So I think that it is a cautionary tale not to take it for granted. And what you're really talking about is creating really major new supply chains that don't exist right now. You're tr creating new supply chains for net zero carbon. And there are a lot of different issues that run into that. And a lot of mining is involved. So we go from this familiar era, that headline you always see, big oil. We'll be talking about big shovels because so much mining. And so I think understanding the supply chains, I think we've seen on the computer chips that the major, the OEMs understood the tier one, but then there are the other tiers beneath there. We found in the computer chips, I think companies in general are having to learn a lot more about their supply chains and not just take them for granted. I couldn't agree more with that. And you hear now automotive executives talking about understanding the electric vehicle supply chain back to the mine. Right. Right. So not only the development of the batteries, but the development of the raw materials, how they are processed, and then, of course, where they come from and how they're mined. Right. And how long does it take to open a mine? I mean, I think in the new map, talk about a 4,300% increase in demand for lithium. So there are a lot of issues there, and some of the ESG issues that with conventional energy will, I think, be there in terms of mining, because, I mean, the estimates of, of how much earth you have to move for a 1,000-pound EV battery are pretty high. Yeah. I want to come back to your point about politics. You, as you differentiate, for example, the U.S. from other countries that we're in the EV race with. So let's expand on that a little bit. When you say politics, I think the point you're making is we need supportive policies, investments in infrastructure, for example, support for the consumer. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think that's it. And then I think it's relations among nations. I do want to finish one other point you asked, 2050. So now Please. I'm going to really go out on a limb here. Yes. So we have two new scenarios we've done. One is called inflections, where we're sort of where we are with some acceleration. Another called green rules, where things get really aggressive and going government policies really strong. And in that, we see 2050, and these are scenarios that's still 28 years away, that in the, in the sort of inflections, we might see about 45% of the fleet being EVs in 2050. In the much more really strong government policies, getting close to 60%. Wow. That's a big difference. Yes. You'll be talking about 2 billion cars instead of 1.4, whatever the yeah. number is now. Significant. I want to get to the subtitle of your book, The Clash of Nations, Geopolitics. Let's talk about that a little bit. This isn't just about climate policy, is it? No. In a way, all of my books, the recent ones, have been about energy and geopolitics coming together. And we're seeing a new geopolitics that will affect energy. And it's this change... It's a remarkable change. I mean, so many of, of your members, they work here in the United States, they're in China as well, and we all sort of assume there's assumption of what I called it the, in the book, I didn't know what to call it, the WTO consensus. We're all in this globalized world together, and so are the supply chains. You know, if you look at the last national security assessment strategy from the Obama administration, it talks about cooperation with China, engagement, 
Now, you look at the first one from the Biden administration, it talks about strategic rivals, uh, great power competition. And by the way, it's the same people who were in the last administration doing it. It tells you how much has changed, this kind of polarization, regionalization between China and the United States. And that's where it collides with climate because of these supply chains. As many people watching this know that 80% of the lithium-ion battery supply chain runs through China. Right. 80% of the solar panels come from China. You go down the list, you look at mining, and you can look at what the Biden administration has said about critical minerals, about supply chain. So much of it has to be seen in this rivalry with China. And look at what they're doing and the way they're going to insulate their industries. So I think that's where climate and geopolitics and the clash of nations comes together. Yeah, you write about this in your book, and those of us in the industry are familiar with this idea the the leapfrog approach, right, in China. Right. They look at the U.S. and they see the U.S. on this long journey to make internal combustion engine vehicles clean, and it's been hugely successful. And to make them better and better. And to make them better and better. China looks at this and says, what? Yeah, we can leapfrog. Yeah. And I think the Chinese drive for electric cars, that's the one, that course is set. There's not going to be any dissent on it, any different views. I mean, climate's a factor, but urban pollution is a factor. Oil imports is a very big factor. Remember, they import 75% of their oil. They wish that they were where the U.S. is mm -hmm. and be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. They worry about their supply lines and their supply chains for oil, particularly when they look at the United States. And third, the other factor I think what you're getting at is they say that we're never going to catch up with Japan. We're never going to catch up with South Korea, the United States, or Europe. But on the electric vehicle, we can leapfrog, and we can be a major player in the global market. So I think there's no question that that's a very important part of their strategy. Are you worried that if we don't look at the energy transition and the EV transformation as a competitive issue, and we look at it as important as climate is, just as a climate issue, do, do we risk our international competitiveness and our economic security as a country? Well, I think for the United States, you have to look at this in the in context of the global competition. I think also, I have a chapter in the book called Four Ghosts Who Haunt the South China Sea. I mean, really should be working as a matter of statecraft to try and get a, not see a further polarization with China and not put everything in terms of the rivalry with China, but certainly when it comes to science, when it comes to AI, so many different things, that rivalry is there now, and it clearly is going to do two things. One, it will affect climate. The other thing is that it's going to be an increasing challenge for any global companies who operate and think globally and think in terms of globalization, and the rule book of globalization are going to find it more challenging and certainly the automobile industry is very much in that arena. Well, Daniel Jurgen, it's been a real pleasure being with you today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, John. I've been great to be here today. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Daniel Jurgen of IHS Market. I encourage you to visit autos2050.com to view more of our discussions with industry thought leaders, policymakers, and innovators shaping our cleaner, safer, and smarter transportation future. And as always, remember to like and follow the Alliance for Automotive Innovation on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to The Overtake wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time, thanks. Thanks.